Uh, please turn again to Genesis chapter uh, 24, 24, the search for a bride for Isaac. An airline flight attendant spent a week's holidays in the Rockies. She was captivated by the mountain peaks, the clear blue skies, sweet-smelling pines. She was also charmed by a very eligible bachelor who owned and operated a cattle ranch, lived in a log cabin. And at the end of this week, Mr. Wonderful proposed. But it all happened so quickly that the woman decided to return home and go to her job, feeling that somehow she'd be uh, guided to make the right decision. Uh, the next day, back at work, in flight, she found herself wondering what to do. To perk up, she went to the, the toilet and the, 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 uh, the plane, splashed some cool water on her face. There was a bit of turbulence uh, outside, and a sign within the toilet lit up, please return to the cabin. She did, to the cabin in the mountains. Now, I hope that immediately you are recognising that that is a wacky way of getting guidance, that none of us would uh, look for guidance in that way. But at the same time, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that within uh, the church, there is a seeking of guidance, which isn't a million miles removed from that. And people are looking for uh, fleeces and tokens and signs of this and that as guidance. And I want us to, to look at this passage uh, this evening, uh, focusing on the, the obvious question of uh, a, a marriage partner, because that is what the, the, uh, the dilemma is here for Isaac. How do we find a bride for Isaac? But of course the questions uh, that arise are broader than that. They relate to all kinds of decisions. Uh, of course, it's a very practical issue uh, for some of us. Uh, it's less practical for others. Uh, some of the rest of us have to look on nervously uh, at these decisions. And for others still, uh, there is the, the place of being able to, to help and support uh, when young folk are asking this very important question, how does God guide you to the person with whom you're going to spend the rest of your life? It might seem that a passage like this would give us very little guidance because uh, it seems to be so much in a different culture. Uh, after all, Isaac himself seems to have very little to do with it all. It's his father who takes the initiative. Uh, it's Eliezer, the servant, uh, who does the searching for the bride. But there are a number of abiding principles which we're going to look at now from the passage, uh, which have continuing relevance to the question of how uh, a young person finds their life partner and also to the, the wider question of how does God guide us in very practical, uh, everyday issues. And behind all of these lies the assumption that God is sovereign and God has a, a, a purpose, a, a purpose for good for us and that we can trust God uh, in life if we will obey what his word has laid down for us. 
Our first point is that God has given guidance through his word. God has given guidance through his word. Now, obviously, uh, somebody uh, looking for the name of their future spouse uh, from the Bible will look for a long time and end up disappointed because we don't have that kind of direct guidance from the Bible. But there are general principles in the Bible which give us the framework as to how uh, one uh, seeks a life partner. And the first of these is that not every believer should be married. That's a very important place to start. Paul, uh, who was possibly widowed, uh, Paul said that he wished that all men were like him because the unmarried uh, didn't have the commitments that married people have and could move around more freely with the gospel. And therefore, someone who is not married ought to recognize the fact that this in itself may be a calling from God. And God may indeed have some special task or ministry for them which would be more difficult if they were married. There are things which single people can do which are much harder for those who have marriage commitments. That's the first important principle from the Word of God. But has to be said most people do get married and again there are guidelines in the Bible. Abraham recognized that it was important for his son Isaac uh, to find a bride from amongst the people of God. One of the, the purposes of marriage is that the couple might have children and might pass on the Christian faith to the next generation. And so here is a very important biblical principle. Christians should marry only in the Lord. Abraham's quite insistent that a bride for Isaac should be found from believing families and not from the surrounding pagan families. He tells Eliezer the servant, I want you to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not get a wife for my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I am living, but will go to my country and my own relatives and get a wife for my son Isaac. That principle is, is uh, reiterated, reinforced in the New Testament. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That's a common sense principle, apart from anything else, uh, if, if Jesus is the most important uh, person in the world to you and your relationship with the Lord is more important than anything else, how can you unite to someone who doesn't share what is most important in your own life? How can they be excluded? How can they fail to comprehend what it is that really makes you tick? But it's important not only to know what God's Word says, to understand that there are general principles uh, for this area of marriage and other areas, it's also important that we're willing to obey. <laughs> it's one thing knowing what the Bible says, but there's always a, a sneaky instinct in us that wants to wriggle out of things when we think that it's going to be difficult or awkward or not acceptable to our friends. 
would much prefer compromise. And we think, well, <laughs> she's not a Christian, but she's happy enough to come with me to church at the moment. And maybe afterwards, maybe after we got married, maybe she would become a Christian then. And we see that with the servant because Eliezer foresees a snag ahead and he's got a plan B. What if the woman is unwilling to come back with me to this land? Shall I then take your son back to the country you came from? See, far more likely you'll get somebody back in Ur, where Abraham had come from. And Abraham's quite insistent. There's going to be no plan B. Make sure that you do not bring my son back there. That would mean taking Isaac away from the land of promise, going back and all that God had brought them to. It would mean a compromise. God insists we follow his way. So God has a way. God has given us in his word uh, certain principles within which we are uh, to to move forward, uh, looking for his directing in subsequent ways. One of these subsequent ways is advice from parents and friends. I guess for most young people, the idea of your father arranging your marriage is simply an appalling prospect. I have to say it appeals to me uh, more as the years go by. (laughs) Uh, But it's important for us to remember that there are many parts of the world where uh, this is exactly what does happen in Christian families, that uh, pretty much the way it was done for Isaac is it operates in, in southern India, for example, in the church. And you look at other parts of the Bible, and you see uh, the, the, the father mainly, but sometimes uh, a mother-in-law, like Naomi, taking a very uh, prominent part in arranging, setting up the marriage for uh, the, the younger person. Probably parents are best not to, to meddle over much in the, the marriage plans of their young people, but their advice should be available and should be heeded by Christian young people because that, it seems to me, is a very real biblical principle. And so should the advice of, of Christian friends that know uh, the person well. And where that is not taken on board, Uh, where people simply go by uh, impulses or by what they see as tokens, providences, things can go very badly. Think of the very unhappy marriage that John Wesley had. Uh, John Wesley is rightly revered as as one of the the greatest uh, evangelists uh, that the country has seen, but uh, he made a terrible mistake uh, in his, uh, in his married life. Uh, he was crossing a bridge in London and he stumbled on the bridge and sprained his ankle. Uh, he was in a lot of pain and his friends took him to the home of a certain Mrs. Mary Vazell, who was uh, a widow uh, living with several children on Red Needle Street. She looked after Wesley, cared for him, and his response to her concern for him was to ask her to to marry him. Uh, So it was a kind of impulsive uh, move uh, based on what he saw as a providential encounter. 
Now, had John Wesley listened to his brother Charles, or I'm sure to, to many other friends who, who knew the lady and her temperament, I'm sure they would have given counsel that, that this was something not to be rushed into, because Mary was of a very different temperament uh, to John. Uh, she was very much a home bird, and she was also a bit uh, suspicious of, of John, uh, who quite frequently would have to, to write letters to to, to female people who, who were uh, anxious for their souls and would have to counsel them. And she made his life a misery. Uh, she not only left him several times and eventually for good, but she wrote letters to other people, misconstruing his motives, always casting him in uh, a bad way. Uh, and sadly, when, when she died, they were separated and it was four days after her death before Wesley knew uh, that this had happened. Well, if the, we are to follow the guidance of the Bible, uh, listen to the advice of, of, of parents, of friends uh, in, in this kind of decision, uh, we're clearly to pray uh, about important decisions like this. Uh, it seems very obvious, uh, and yet many, many Christians are only fervent in prayer in regard to, to something when it's actually going wrong. Uh, when we're ill or when we're employed, pray like mad. Uh, but prayer in an enormously important matter like this is, is so important. And Eliezer is a good example. Uh, then he prayed, O Lord God of my master Abraham, give me success today and show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I'm standing beside this spring and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be that when I say to the girl, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, drink and I'll water your camels too, let her be the one you have chosen for your servant, Isaac. Now, I have to say straight away that this is, is not uh, the, the kind of prayer that's a model for us, this, this asking of God to, to do something to set up a certain set of circumstances which will uh, affirm that this is the right course of action. You do not find the apostles, for example, uh, doing this after Pentecost. Uh, uh, but nevertheless, uh, he, he, he prayed and prayed believing that God would answer him. That's the, that's the important thing to take away. And God did answer him. And when God answered him, he praised God. Fourthly, when, when we are praying and when we are weighing the advice of, of our, our others, friends and family, we ought to believe at all times that God is in control of all events. God is able, in case of, of uh, marriage and these decisions, able to lead uh, a person to the right uh, person to be their life partner. God is in control of the whole world. He is the God uh, who controls the tides and the plants and the honeybee, the God who sets up presidents and prime ministers, uh, the God who uh, tore down the Berlin Wall and brought communism to an end in Russia. He is the God who is able to do all things. And he's in control of your life. If you trust uh, in God, then uh, he will bring to pass his good purposes in 
your life. Uh, we don't need to, to be afraid. Uh, in this particular uh, issue, the, the issue of marriage, people become very stressed out. Oh, I'm going to be left in the shelf. Things aren't going to work out for me. I'll never find uh, the right person. And God uh, has our lives in his good and gracious and wise control. We see that wonderfully in, in this uh, little story here. Uh, he orders things so that Rebecca will be at the well at just the right time when Eliezer arrives there. The Lord answers Eliezer's prayer and he points out Rebecca by having her offer to water his camels as well as give him a drink. And then back at her father's uh, home, uh, Eliezer is able to convince the family that it is God's will that Rebecca come home and be married uh, to his master. And they agree. Uh, they agree quite quickly at first. And then they seem to have a, a time of wavering and hesitation. And, and they want her to remain for another ten days. And eventually they place the decision back in Rebecca's hands. And she's asked the, the big question, will you go with this man? And she responds, I will go. And then at the end, when, when they're, they're approaching uh, Abraham's home again, who should they see out in the field as they approach but Isaac out in the field meditating there's not a tiny detail over which God is not guiding directing controlling our lives and that gives us enormous comfort and confidence fifthly we should remember uh, in the area of relationships that what the world sees as important is perhaps much less important in God's sight. Uh, what do people generally prize uh, in this area? What's well, looks, isn't it? Uh, perfect figure, uh, beautiful appearance, strength uh, on the man's side. It's easy to be caught up in that way of thinking. But what was important uh, in relation to Rebecca, what, what the tests that uh, Eliezer asked for in relation to Rebecca was what related to her character, uh, her willingness to attend to his needs and go beyond that to water his camel showed that, that she was somebody who was caring, uh, she was someone who was considerate. She offers him, uh, the servant, uh, water to quench his thirst and then goes, as it were, the second mile and says, but I'll water your camels also. And that was no little task for her. Uh, if you know how much a camel drinks, a camel will drink 25 gallons of water and there were 10 camels. So that's 250 gallons of water if they all had as much as they could have drunk. And then she shows that she has a hospitable spirit. She invites the servant to her home and she arranges fodder for the animals. And then finally she shows that like her future father-in-law, she has a, a willingness to step out in faith. She's willing to leave her own home to go to a place that she doesn't know with an unknown husband in the land of promise. Uh, uh, promise. Now, she is beautiful as well. Verse, verse 16 tells us that she is beautiful. And beauty is something which is appreciated and prized uh, in the scriptures. 
But that's not the most telling or most important feature of Rebecca. It was aspects of a godly character that mark her out as a bride fit for Isaac, the child of promise. And then we see love growing. I love the end of the story. Uh, Eliezer gets the girl for Isaac. Laban and Bethuel agree that Rebekah can go and be married to, to Isaac. Uh, and despite this playing for time, they eventually uh, go off for Canaan. Uh, Rebecca sees Isaac out at, at prayer or meditating. She asks, who's the man in the field who's coming to meet us? It's my master Isaac, your future husband, says Eliezer. And imagine the scene as they meet. Imagine this girl who's never met this man before. Hello, I'm Rebecca. And Isaac, it's lovely to meet you. And they go and uh, are taken to the guest tents and Eliezer uh, goes over to uh, his master and excitedly tells him all that happened. Would you believe it? He said, God answered my prayer to the letter. She watered all the camels. And Isaac married Rebekah. And did you notice uh, the, the lovely order of ordering of things and he loved her love <coughs> followed and grew after they were married this couple who had no romantic falling in love very much an arranged marriage but they grew in love and he loved her now not everyone's story ends up as smoothly as Isaac's uh, seemed to but if we seek God's will, if we seek to, to submit ourselves to his word, if we have the confidence of knowing that he is in sovereign control over all the detail of our lives, and if we follow his word with a good measure of common sense also, taking into account the, the good counsel of Christian friends and family, if we acknowledge him in all our ways, he will make our paths straight. Now, this is a, a beautiful story uh, in, its, in its own right. One of the most beautiful stories uh, in the Old Testament. And it's full of, of this kind of practical application to, to marriage and to decision-making. But, you know, in common with so many uh, of, of the Old Testament accounts, uh, isn't it always the case that they're nudging us uh, forward in our thinking? And they're pointing us uh, to, to, to the one around whom the whole of history is revolving. Uh, they're pointing us to Jesus. Someone else who came looking for a bride. Before the world was even created, there was a father who had chosen a bride for his son. That bride we call the church. And the whole storyline of the Bible can be thought of as the search of a bride for the son. All, it's all going to culminate in this great wedding banquet that we have portrayed in Revelation. The bride is the chosen of the father. 
and yet she's made up of people who are far from attractive. Uh, morally, these people who are going to be the bride have got nothing going for them. There's nothing uh, in this bride that would say, look at me, how, how wonderful I am, choose me. No. Instead of the beauty of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, they've lived lives of selfishness and envy and lust and rage. And yet the father sends the son for this bride and the son goes out into the far country where the bride is to be found. And he goes to win the bride, no matter what the cost. Jesus comes into our world and in the Gospels we find Jesus continually referring to himself as the bridegroom. And we wonder, what must the people have thought when Jesus spoke about himself as the bridegroom? Because he does it again and again. Uh, when people question the fact that his disciples aren't fasting, he replies, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? And he makes clear that he's on a mission. He's on a mission to win a bride for himself, to seek out a people. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And then there's this lovely occasion at another well. Uh, it's a well in Samaria. Its connections are with another of the patriarchs, with Jacob. And we see Jesus' mission enacted out. And there at the well he encounters a woman who's living in deep moral darkness. And all through the encounter there is a, a palpable tension because she is a grossly immoral woman. And instead of the bridegroom, uh, the, uh, sorry, once again, the, 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 the bridegroom who is seeking the bride has the, the woman draw water for him. There's an opportunity given to serve Jesus. And then Jesus opens up her life, shows her that he knows all that's in her heart, and skewers the darkness of her heart, exposes the fact that all her life has been spent looking for satisfaction and never finding it, looking for a water that would never fulfill her. And eventually, she's won over, and she goes to her people in the village, and they echo what she has told them, that Jesus is indeed the saviour of the world. Jesus has come looking for a bride. And Paul tells us that Jesus' dealings with his bride are to beautify her, to get rid of all of the blemishes, all of the wrinkles and spots and stains. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And that is so amazing, isn't it? Because if you're a believer, that's you. You are that bride. And Jesus loves you so much that he's not content to leave you as you are. He is beautifying you, changing you in preparation for that day when you will stand with all the other saints of God before him. What a, a cure for insecurities that is, to know that Jesus is committed to us in such a way. Wonderful story one.
the groom who's seeking a bride. And the question that uh, is always asked of those who do not yet know that they are trusting in Jesus, who are outside the church, the bride of Christ, is the same one that was asked of Rebecca. That lovely question, it's a very romantic question, isn't it? But it comes with a spiritual force to anyone, anyone here tonight who is not a Christian. Will you go with this man? See, in the mystery of, of election, God chooses a bride for his son. But woven into that mystery is the responsibility placed on everyone to respond, to trust, to say, yes, I will go gladly with Jesus. I will take him as mine. I will go wherever he leads me. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the beauty of your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, this wonderful story. Uh, we thank you for its practical application in our lives. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to be led by your word and not by the moors of the world. And Lord, thank you that Jesus came seeking poor, wretched people like us and has such glorious plans to present us faultless in your presence. Lord, we're amazed at the wonder of your grace. Receive our praise, our thanks, our gratitude, our worship. In Jesus' name, amen.